Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On the first segment in this episode, we bring you a conversation on a trend in the market called woke capitalism. From Gillette to Pepsi, many companies are starting to market their products by pushing social justice issues, signaling to consumers that they are, quote, woke. So is this trend truly new in the market? And is there a place for business to comment on social justice? Acton's president and co-founder, Reverend Robert Sirico, breaks it down. After that, Daniel J. Mahoney, professor of political science at Assumption College, speaks with me about his newest book called The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. In this conversation, Dan lays out the temptation throughout history to mistake the kingdom of earth for the kingdom of heaven and how we see the church being tempted by this false doctrine today. Don't forget that every Wednesday when our episodes release, I post the show notes at Acton's blog, so be sure to check those out. These show notes contain links to books and articles mentioned in every episode. Also, if you like this podcast, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Welcome. This is Dan Huger, librarian and research associate at the Acton Institute. Today, my guest is Father Robert Sirico, co-founder and president of the Acton Institute. Father Robert and I will be discussing the woke capitalism phenomena, the subject of a recent interview he had with William McGurn, which was featured in the Wall Street Journal. Father Robert, welcome to Acton Line, and thank you for speaking with us. Always great to be back. Thank you. Um, this terminology of woke, just for our listeners, a little historical prologue, uh, originated in the African-American community, um, and it spoke to a sense of uh, racial consciousness by um, people like the novelist William Melvin Kelly and the playwright Barry Beckham uh, in the 60s and 70s used it in this way. Uh, its recent popular and more comprehensive sense both originate from the singer-songwriter Erica Baidu's uh, 2008 song, Master Teacher in which she repeats the phrase, quote-unquote, I stay woke. In 2012, Badu and other Twitter users began using the phrase in the broader sense of social consciousness. Um, what is the similarity to and where is the tension between what we would think of as conscience and this notion of wokeness or social consciousness, Father Robert? Well, I, I think what they're trying to do is um, make more contemporary this notion of conscience uh, of doing the right in society and uh, apply it. I think sometimes it uh, is too narrowly applied to just the questions of tensions over race and and now the politically correct canon mm -hmm. of things um, in the sense that people should buy things or support companies whose ethical positions they support. This is a general moral uh, and ethical uh, stance that's perfectly understandable, acceptable, and to which businesses have always responded. It, this is new because we have a new word we've put on it mm -hmm. and a new set of uh, cultural norms that are being uh, introduced. But as an economic phenomenon, and this is where I think the lack of clarity comes when you talk about woke capitalism. Uh, it is not new at all because, uh, of course, entrepreneurs are always looking for markets, so they're going to want to appease their markets in the best way that they know how. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, commentators on the right like Tucker Carlson and Rod Dreyer 
have increasingly been sort of like beating this drum that business and particularly big business in the United States seems antithetical to sort of family, moral values, and that sort of thing. And what you're saying is, is that the way that this is, this is working itself out is fundamentally similar. It's just, it's just yeah. the, the current zeitgeist. Yeah, is. And, and it's not true that all big businesses you know, are like that. Why don't we refer to, for, for instance, Chick-fil-A as woke capitalism? Yeah. I mean, it really tells you that right there, there's a built-in to this rhetoric is a prejudice. Uh, there's an ideological definition, and so people are trying to critique something that they're not identifying, and that's always dangerous. And particularly with regard to Dreyer, I think there's a lack of clarity in some of this area because mm-hmm. he he gives with one hand and takes back part of it with the other. So, how should we as consumers in the marketplace respond to these sort of appeals from business that that may be uh, antithetical to our values? Well, I. Uh, Part of the response is, you know, if it really irks you, if it's really something you're concerned about, to let people know. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, this is a trend and a trend that will will pass. And very often the business themselves knows their market. They know what they're going after. Sometimes they miss yeah. the mark, yep. <laughs> you know, and they have to kind of backtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen a few a- examples of that uh, more recently. I mean, Gillette, I think, is... Uh, suffering from uh, the the ads that they did on uh, what was it called uh, hyper yeah um, toxic, toxic masculinity, masculinity. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, I think we need to let this thing play itself out and understand really what's going on the the damage that's done is the kind of iconography that's being offered to the society in general and the inducement to more impressionable people especially young people. Uh, as to the moral propriety of various causes that are being advocated. How should business people respond to the demands of, of activists and many of their consumers uh, regarding what they see as issues of social justice? Um, is there a place for socially conscious business? Yes, but I think it has to be more holistic and, and less um, exploitative, less um, transactional. Uh, I think if you really are going to talk about a, a sense of social justice, then that's going to exist within a business itself. It's going to exist within the atmosphere and the culture that people build. And one can do that without agreeing with people. In other words, uh, I, I, I see no contradiction between uh, a Christian, Orthodox, conservative, whatever you want to call it, business people having an environment that does not tolerate uh, abuse or harassment of people because of their sexual orientation or because of their much less because of their race. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't I think we have to be very careful what we're fighting here and what we're not fighting here. Yeah. And uh, I think that businesses are always going to be sensitive, as I say, because they're going to one hopes that they know what their market uh, constituency uh, needs. Yeah, and oftentimes these outward-facing efforts, be, for, be they for good or for ill, 
often paper over some of the internal dynamics of the business, again, for good or for ill. So it's good that there's there's, there's an outward-facing social consciousness, right. and then there's an inward-facing yeah. in terms of how you treat employees, coworkers. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, what you're getting to is the harder question. I think it's much easier to talk about, well, capitalism and, and this kind of thing, and to put a button on or to boycott or things like that. But as a person who believes in a society that should be free and virtuous together, we have to accept the responsibility that we need to be culture builders. And that takes a lot of interior work. And this is where I think Dreyer is right. This is the part of Dreyer that uh, I think he points to that's completely correct. We need to build uh, communities of virtue that hold each other accountable and that habituate the practice of this virtue without regard to the overall political correctness, much less the economic incentives Mm -hmm. uh, to be politically correct. What role do religious leaders have in when these sorts of culture wars are carried out under a commercial guise? Well, well, the fundamental thing we need to do is build alternative cultures, to be countercultural. The problem with a lot of religion, mainstream religion, is that it's gotten on the bandwagon and taken hold of the reins. Uh, it's, it's going ahead with this and trying to be more politically correct than thou. In the name, uh, particularly since the 60s, there's been this um, exuberant embrace of relevancy. And what is so sad is that those religious organizations, those ostensibly moral leaders, have become less relevant mm-hmm. and less moral uh, in the process. Uh, I think to be really culturally counterculture it has a cost associated with it. And that very cost and the willingness to undertake that cost and the hard work of building a culture is what inspires other people, especially young people, Mm -hmm. to come. Young people are by nature idealists, and they should be admonished not to settle for mediocrity uh, and should have a holistic vision presented to them, a formation of how society really can take into consideration our differences and the vulnerability of other human beings, not in this kind of very superficial and faddish sort of way. So there's, I mean, there's there's an abdication of leadership that's happened when, yes. when all of a sudden you're, you're you're turning to Oreos for your moral, <laughs> for your moral structure. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. There's 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 something that's been deeply wrong in the religious community for a long time. Yes, for a long, long time. For Oreos to become the icon mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. tells you it all right there, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, does this sort of robust activism in the marketplace necessitate state intervention in the market to sort of rein in this sort of thing? You know, to the extent that conservatives are calling for that, they're calling for their own destruction. Mm -hmm. Because uh, as I indicated in my interview uh, in the Wall Street Journal, which I really was quoting from a debate that I had with the editor of First Things, uh, conservatives often think they're going to be on the Politburo <laughs> yeah. uh, that gets to make these decisions when I think it's not going to be people with our frame of reference, our worldview at all. So if you're going to set up legal structures that are going to tell people what to think, how to act, how to be, 
uh, then you're going to be stuck with those structures when the people who are running them are marginalizing you and your beliefs. Yeah. There's a way um, when, when we turn to, to political solutions, it's sort of like a last-ditch effort, having, having lost in so many ways, having abdicated the leadership and the responsibility necessary to build the culture. Yeah. Um, this becomes the straw to yeah. be grasped at. You know, I think that's very true. And uh, let, me, let me hold up an example from history. Uh, the civil rights movement, particularly in the 1950s and to the early 1960s, I would say that probably was the most revolutionary period in American history where racial sensibilities were changing, where it was in process. Things were going on. Thing, people were reconsidering assumptions that had been handed down to them. And, and I grew up in this period of time. So what I'm talking about is something that I remember uh, from one generation to the next, from my father's generation to my generation. Then in the 1960s onto the 1970s, the state came in. It's almost like <laughs> there was a, a movie called uh, Start the Revolution Without Me in the 1970s. Very funny. It was about the French Revolution, the spoof on the French Revolution. And uh, King Louis saw the crowds coming toward uh, Versailles and ran out the side door and ran through the crowd. Nobody noticed him. Uh, and as he came upon them and they looked and they were all running toward Versailles, he was frightened and then turned around and ran with them <laughs> toward Versailles. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what the state does. They see a movement beginning and they jump on the bandwagon and then they bureaucratize it, they politicize it, they create divisions, mm -hmm. uh, and then they ruin it. Uh, I think a lot more could have been done had that cultural movement continued, animated in large part by religious sensibility. Yeah. Uh, and once it was politicized, it became the kind of racially divisive circumstance that we live in now. And it, and it created a situation where people thought that there was a political solution that had been arrived at right. when the actual work of reconciliation had not been had been papered over and stymied. Yeah, um, a lot of this anxiety with this has to do with people themselves feeling threatened by a new social environment, which they see as hostile and antagonistic to their deepest values and uh, and convictions. How would you advise someone who's feeling that way, who's feeling under assault? Somebody who would, you know, is having a hard time with this present moment, who maybe wants to reach out for easy political solutions to the hard work of cultural renewal. What, what would you say to that, that sort of person? Well, I mean, that, of course, it depends on the person and, and, and how they're reacting and what their mental status is generally. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first things I tell people is don't go on the web. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't, don't document your insanity. Um, I think what we need is to engage in some serious reflection, to find the kinds of conversations where you can have real disagreements with people who will stay with you in a disagreement, in an argument, get your bearings about you. Usually I find uh, personally when I'm feeling overwhelmed or embattled, uh, one of the little things that helps me is making a to-do list of things. What, what, is, 
What, what do I need to be doing? Mm-hmm. And I very often find that that to-do list isn't as enormous as I thought it was. And it's, I think what a person who is experiencing this um, uh, being overwhelmed by the culture is they're feeling out of control. And something as simple as a schedule or a to-do list or a sense of, of um, community with friends mm-hmm. who are supportive – gives you a, a sense, once again, of, of real control over your life. Yeah. People want freedom. People mm-hmm. want to be able to live their lives. And frustrations result from a whole variety of things, yeah. some more serious than others. And there's there's always opportunities for action and service. Right. And and, and, and building the community. And, and you don't build the community in the abstraction. Yeah. You do it in the concrete. You start in your neighborhood. <laughs> Somebody once said, uh, everybody wants a clean environment. And nobody wants to take out the garbage. Well, I think that's a fitting thought to end on. Father Robert, thank you so much for uh, being with us today and uh, for your insights uh, into this uh, heavily discussed topic. Thank you very much. In the face of threats to religious liberty, a growing cry for socialism from young Americans, and a ballooning national debt, the Acton Institute offers a fresh and unique perspective by connecting economic freedom, free enterprise, and entrepreneurship with a vibrant Judeo-Christian world culture. Acton believes that liberty is best preserved when man's God-given dignity is recognized and respected. Come celebrate Acton's 29th year with us in Grand Rapids on October 15 for a dinner and a special keynote address from Andrew Clavin, the award-winning author, screenwriter, and host of The Andrew Clavin Show at The Daily Wire. Save your seat today at acton.org slash events. Today, I am joined on the podcast by Daniel J. Mahoney, professor of politics at Assumption College. He has written extensively on Marxism and totalitarian ideology in the 20th century and is a go-to expert on the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Today, we're going to talk about your newest book called The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. Um, Dan, on the very first page, you say that a humanitarian idol has, quote, begun to corrupt Christianity. What is this humanitarian idol? Well, what I call humanitarianism, I also call following the 19th century uh, French social thinker August Comte, the religion of humanity. And I think that uh, this, this humanitarian ethos or this religion of humanity is an approach to the human condition that more or less treats man as the measure of everything. It downplays the transcendental dimensions of authentic religion, and it it sees the principal path facing human beings as what I call a project of this worldly amelioration, the building of a perfectly just social order, which of course is impossible, and, and, and increasingly, I think, many Christians of all denominations see this kind of humanitarianism as the effective truth of the Christian uh, religion. So there's little emphasis on sin or limits. There's a tendency to blame evil and criminality on unjust social structures. A lot of religious people today talk about social sin. And many have succumbed to, I think, a false and very unchristian belief in the perfectibility of human beings in society. Uh, and often um, 
many secular humanitarians and many progressive Christians are sort of soft, uh, either advocates of abortion or euthanasia, or soft in resisting them, and they also lean toward pacifism, sort of rejecting the just war tradition, etc. And I also say in the book that I think humanitarians manage to combine in a rather toxic way moralism and relativism. So they don't believe in any objective morality or intrinsic standards, permanent enduring standards of right and wrong, but at the same time, they're very angry, they're very moralistic. And we see that on the campuses, we see that increasingly in the churches. So do you think that the heart of this religion is basically the belief that, you know, sin isn't as much to blame for problems we face as much as inequality and systemic injustice are? And if we just focus primarily on overcoming those, we'll solve most problems? I do. And and that means, as Cardinal Mueller, the former head of the Congregation for the Defense of the Faith in Rome, who was fired by Pope Francis, Cardinal Mueller says, you know, more and more certain kind of Christians understand the churches to be humanitarian NGOs, promoting, you know, a rather doctrinary egalitarianism, and underestimating uh, the power of sin, you know, the dra- what I like to call following Solzhenitsyn, and the drama of good and evil in the human soul. I think one sign of this humanitarian impulse is the tendency to be very sure who the victims and victimizers are in society. You know, uh, the 20th century totalitarians knew the the Jews were bad, the bourgeois was bad, the Christians were bad. Well, some of our progressives outside and inside the church, these humanitarians are quite sure uh, who the evildoers are, who the privileged are, who the victimizers are. And they really have forgotten about the drama of good and evil in the human soul. And they've forgotten about Christ's great imperative for us to turn the sword inward in a spirit of, of, uh, of repentance. Um, um, you know, for example, I think in the, the present pontificate in Rome, we hear a lot of talk about mercy, but very little about repentance. And, uh, and therefore, mercy is sometimes understood as received as coextensive with democratic relativism, which, of course, has nothing to do with um, uh, uh, an understanding of human responsibility. And uh, mercy never uh, negates uh, justice, and it never negates the requirement of the soul to turn in repentance to the light of God. Well, speaking about Pope Francis, when you were earlier describing the definition for the religion of humanity, you mentioned that there is a temptation towards pacifism that it produces. And Francis has declared that, quote, no war is just and that one always wins with peace. So why does this humanitarian religion result in, you say, allowing its adherents to basically detach themselves from the communities of action, such as nations and churches? What about it lends itself to political inaction or pacifism? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I I think, um, uh, in part, there's a... um, um, there's an implicit materialism. I don't want to say the Pope is a materialist. I don't think he's a materialist. But on the other hand, there's an inordinate emphasis in progressive Christian circles on uh, physical survival as the goal of human life. That's actually a very modernist ethos. 
Um, there's also a forgetting. There's an emphasis on cosmopolitanism, on world governing authorities, on uh, uh, an underestimation of sin and original sin, and therefore the place of conflict in social and political life. And all of this leads to a kind of um, forgetting that the common good requires um, a political articulation. It, uh, it depends upon citizens and statesmen who are willing to fight for freedom, uh, who are willing to defend justice and liberty. Um, I do think Christians are obliged to try to war, avoid war, war where, is po where possible. But on the other hand, um, there's also an obligation of charity to defend the weak and the innocent. Um, and a consistent pacifism, for example, would get rid of police forces. It would get rid of, um, you know, any use of armed force to defend the common good or the innocent. And uh, I think, as I try to argue in the book, that that is not an authentic rendering of the Sermon on the Mount or the Christian tradition. I don't think Christ was teaching pacifism. I also am a little appalled by the fact that the Pope simply disregards the Church's own teaching on this matter. The Church has never taught, the Catholic Church, for example, has never taught that war is always wrong and that every form of peace is good and every form of conflict is bad. St. Augustine, for example, who's a, a shared presence for Reformation Christianity and Roman Catholicism, speaks of tranquility of order. Peace has to be tied to a certain order that has an element of justice and a concern for the common good. And uh, the idea, for example, that uh, Christians should simply uh, resign themselves to totalitarian aggression or something like that is, uh, I think, contrary to the, 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 the breadth and depth of the Christian tradition. So this is, I think, one thing that's troubling about Francis is he often innovates in ways that have more to do with kneeling before the world, succumbing to the zeitgeist, than you know, real fidelity to the Christian moral tradition or to the full weight of scripture and tradition. And we see this humanitarian religion infecting not only the pontificate, though, but across evangelical Christianity, correct? I think so. I think, uh, for example, in the evangelical world, I think a lot of young hip, sort of progressive-minded intellectuals interpret social justice in a way, we see this in Catholic circles too, uh, social justice is sometimes understood to mean an extreme form of distributive justice, even socialism. Um, again, there's a, um, um, a kind of forgetting of the, uh, the, the whole tradition of subsidiarity that um, you know, that uh, the fact that there are social issues that need to be addressed doesn't necessarily mean that the, that ought to be done by centralized, bureaucratized government that undermines virtue and personal responsibility. Um, I also think, you know, uh, this, this, this omnipresent preoccupation with social justice, it's hard to know exactly what the adjective adds to justice. I have nothing against the phrase per se, but it, it often becomes an excuse for interpreting the Christian social tradition in as progressive way as possible. I also think that, you know, humanitarian-minded, progressive-minded evangelicals, Catholics, not to mention liberal Protestants, 
they don't want to talk about really important issues like the protection of the young or uh, the uh, the unborn or uh, the the subversion of a marriage, uh, you know, which depends upon the natural complementarity of men and women, men and women. So there's a there's a kind of accommodation to the culture, you know, that the church has to keep up, that its teaching has to be revised in light of the more recent political and cultural uh, developments. I also I'd say conscience is redefined as sort of subjective arbitrariness, what you feel inside rather than fidelity to the moral law. So, yes, I think this is a real I think this is a real problem across the board in the Christian churches and in Judaism too. And uh but um perhaps in my book I focus more on the Catholic problem because I'm more surprised by it. I sort of expected the Catholic Church to hold the line a little bit more, but uh but I think this subversion as I call it is working itself out uh in an ecumenical way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. Do you think that the way that this um, religion is embodying itself contemporarily right now, is this a soft version compared to what you have called basically like a, a hard version of the humanitarian religion in the 20th century? And if so, what are the distinctions there? Well, you know, I, I think it's true that if you look at uh, the totalitarian secular religions of the 20th century, Nazism, communism, this rejection of God, and especially in the case of communism, the sort of self-deification of humanity took an extremely hard, Reinhold Niebuhr called it hard utopianism, the use of state power to persecute, to to uh, war against human nature, to destroy the churches, the traditional family, civil society, etc., etc., and that was supported by a self-conscious ideology that was anti-Christian and and anti-humanity, uh, uh, um, I don't think the soft humanitarians particularly aim at a totalitar- totalitarianism, but their premises can lead to coercion. If opposition to same-sex marriage means you're a homophobe, realism about the Koran means you're an Islamophobe, uh, these kinds of currents have to be repudiated. They have to be uh, driven out of the public square. So my concern as as this soft humanitarianism becomes influential in the churches, dominant in the universities, you know, it's taken over newspapers like the Washington Post, the New York Times, increasingly other voices, uh, people who adhere to a more traditional and I think humane perspective, are going to be told that those approaches are verboten, that they're haters, et cetera, et cetera. So I do worry that the soft humanitarianism is not so gradually becoming harder and more coercive. Do you, um, something I've been wondering actually just recently, do you think that there's almost like a Manichaean strain in the current humanitarian religion that we see, almost an us versus them, black versus white kind of um, narrative going on? Yes, yes, and that, that's what I meant before about this excessive surety about who the victims and victimizers are. I call it ideological Manichaeanism, where instead of seeing partial truth in different political and social perspectives, there's this deep abiding moralism that's convinced that those who uphold traditional Christianity or classical wisdom 
or even the American civic tradition are racist and sexist, and all the phobes. I mean, this utter linguistic corruption where you just add phobe to uh, a word and denounce whole people as enemies of humanity. I think this is, uh, yes, this is a Manichaeanism. It's a, um, it's a uh, division of the world into black and white, uh, into good and evil, but it's a, that's what I meant before, but uh, this combined, this is a toxic combination of relativism, because it denies the ten, you know the the moral law, the Ten Commandments, uh, objective morality, but it replaces it with something exceedingly angry and moralistic. And uh, a lot of lot of times, conservative Christians denounce relativism. They're right to denounce relativism, but I think we have to be more attentive to this angry moralism. How how it destroys the civility and the bonds of the common good in a free society. Now, I'm going to take our conversation um, somewhere a little bit different because I want to talk about where these ideas came out of, where their roots are. Because in Chapter 8, you make the argument that the humanitarian religion has partly come out of the separation of reason and faith or a rational inquiry into truth. How, how so? Yeah, I'm concerned, uh, as Sam Craig is in his recent book on reason and faith, uh, with a, a kind of fideism that says the only basis or ground of religious truth is the act of faith. And like Sam, I think we have to recover a more capacious view of human reason. Pope Benedict XVI used to say, one of the problems in the contemporary world, inside and outside of the churches and the intellectual world more broadly, is an excessive self-limitation of reason. That reason cannot speak about good and bad. That non-scientific modes of knowing are arbitrary and unreal. And uh, one thing I talk about in that chapter 8 is conscience. Cardinal Newman and others saw conscience not as something arbitrary, you know, something I feel that allows me to pursue a path of moral laxity, but conscience was this internal portal that allowed us to make judgments, applying principles of right and wrong to specific circumstances. And it's a form of reasoning, of moral reasoning. It's not scientific reasoning, but it's real. It has a certain objectivity and non-arbitrariness to it. So um, the scripture, the Book of Kings, calls it the listening heart. You know, Solomon asked God when he becomes king, uh, not for power, not for prestige, but for the distinction, for the ability to distinguish right from wrong, uh, justice and injustice. And uh, so I think the rekindling of this listening heart, the rekindling of the idea that experience, reason, conscience can give us access to certain truths about how to live, certain truths about the order of things, certain truths about the natural order and God's creation. so, so important. We can't simply rely on emotivism or some fideism that says, you know, these are just my feelings. We have to reclaim reason from those who have undermined it and distorted it. 
I wish I had longer to talk with you, but unfortunately we are running out of time. So I just, I actually wanted to end, of course, appropriately on a Solzhenitsyn quote. I think this quote is key to responding. He's famous for saying that the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. And you say that the great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn thought that the disasters of the 20th century happened because men have forgotten God, a forgetting that also entailed loss of confidence in the reality of the human soul where good and evil and an enduring moral order oriented the choices of men. I think that's a a perfect quote to end on because it emphasizes what we've been talking about here that I think a lot of this is rooted in a lack of attentiveness on how sinful the human person is um, and forgetting that we are heading towards an eternal destiny and and we can't bring utopia here on earth. By the way, that that quotation gets to the heart of things and it reminds us of the importance of a truthful anthropology. You know, Pascal said Christianity knows the truth about man. And I think that's one of the best arguments for Christianity, that it understands the human heart and human soul in a deep and abiding way. And uh, we Christians need to listen to that, those truths that we know about man, the truth about man, and not take our bearings from false ideologies and false anthropologies. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Carolyn. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening today. Our podcast team here at the Acton Institute is working hard each and every week to bring you another great episode of Acton Line, but we couldn't do it without you. Join our efforts to bridge good intentions with sound economics by sharing this podcast with a friend, leaving us a rating or review, or even emailing me with any feedback you have at actonline at acton.org. Lastly, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes and subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on the usual directories like iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, but we are also now on YouTube and Spotify.